Only are we downtown London. We're downtown London on a pretty phenomenal day. This is the day that we get to honor the team of the century, the Canadian Hockey League's team of the century. Tonight at Budweiser Gardens, the London Knights are going to play the Mississauga Steelheads, and the current incarnation of the London Knights is acting a lot like a former edition of the London Knights because they're going after their 10th straight victory. Well, the team that is going to be honored, they started the season on a 10-0 run. And we have four members of that team with us here for the next hour to relive some memories, head behind the scenes. Please welcome to London Live, Danny Savret, Drew Larman, Brian Rodney, and Jim McKellar. Of course, the captain, the defensive forward, the offensive defenseman, the assistant general manager. Everybody on the team, Danny, had a role, didn't they? Yeah, we were a pretty deep team. I think that was... Uh that was that separated us from the rest of the pack. I think in junior hockey you usually have uh, a handful of marquee players, and I think we were fortunate enough to have you know 10, 12, a uh, whole roster full of them. So I think that sort of differentiated ourselves from the rest of the pack. This is going back to 2004, 2005. You guys aren't feeling old by any means, though, right? No? Extremely, yes, extremely. We've got dads on stage. We'd no, not getting back together. What kind of a reunion has that been like? Uh, it was good. Last night, we a few of us met met up, and obviously today will be uh, more so uh, more formal. But um, I mean, I'll probably let Larmy speak a little bit more. I'm, I I reside here in in London, so I see a lot of the faces. But maybe for you, if you've been you've been outside for a while. Yeah, it's um, you know I flew in yesterday uh, from Florida and. I think it's been about seven years since I've been in London, so it was amazing to see. You know, I didn't see I see maybe like three, four guys, and I'll see everyone else today. And just to be swept up by that social, just memories of what I did experience here, like already, and I haven't even been here 24 hours, and my spirits are elevated like exponentially uh, in just one day. So you walked out um, onto that hotel balcony this morning did you give it the old hello london I did. I did i opened the windows up on the delta armories i'm like hello london yes indeed <laughs> and i was like you've been good to me london why haven't i been back i'm like thinking to myself so uh, i'm just really looking forward or really enjoying the moment being here right now and you know he's like hey you want to go go on the radio i'm like sure yeah i'm about a block away and um I love talking about the memories. They're great. What about, what about you, Rod? Yeah, uh, just to echo some of that. Uh, similar excitement for me. I haven't seen a lot of the boys. Um, you know, I'm not huge on social media and whatnot, so I don't uh, keep up with a lot of the guys as much as I'd like to. So, you know, thinking about getting to see some of the guys brings brings back, uh, you know, memories and things that had happened, uh, you know, when we were together as a team. And um, another thing, just to echo what Danny said earlier about, uh, you know, as a collective, as a team, you know, one of the things that we did, we had um, we had a couple superstars, right? But we didn't care who who did it that night. You know, as long as somebody did it. You know, somebody scored, somebody made that that play to help us win. So I think that also helped us um, differentiate ourselves from other good teams. Is that it didn't matter as long as somebody got it done in our room, and uh, you know, we uh, we all uh, you know took that responsibility and uh, cherished it. So. Jim, let's talk about building this team because you were one of the architects of this team. You have players who were drafted like Danny. You have players who were acquired in trades like Drew and Brian. How do you think this team came together like it did in the building phase? Well, I think if you look back to our 01 draft, it would have been the 95, or sorry, the 85 draft, uh, born 
So Danny was a part of that. But we had that probably built the foundation and started the foundation. And then we were able to follow that up with the 86 group of Dave Boland. Um, so guys like Danny and Corey Perry and Dylan Hunter, they kind of set the stage, Mark Mathot. And then we were able to add layers with Dave Boland. We ended up trading Kyle Quincy away, which was tough. We really liked Kyle, but we traded him for Rob Shrimp. And Rob Shrimp had a great career here, was a big part of the team. So those two layers and then added in pieces like Brian and, and Drew to the team that were easy fits. I mean, I think the first day they walked in, they were part of it and, and a big part of the team right away. And the group that we had had been drafted was around it, but the guys we acquired had a lot of character and really cared and wanted to win. We did a lot of homework on the guys we traded for. We didn't want to add in guys that were going to be difficult. And as Rod said, guys, the pecking order sorted itself out very quickly. And we didn't care who wanted to get the goal somebody, as long as somebody got a goal. So I think it's a credit to the character of the guys we drafted, but also the guys we traded for and the, the way they got along. What was it like to watch them grow up? Because even before that 0405 year, there was a great run the year before to the conference final against the Guelph Storm. And you just saw this maturation of this team and what it could become. For sure. And I think, you know, look back, I mean, either, there were guys even not on this team that were a part of it. Like Dennis Weidman, I think, set a lot of things in motion with the group. There was a bitter taste in a lot of guys' mouth when we lost to Guelph the year before. Danny could probably speak to that. It was tough. We, lost, we thought we'd go to the Memorial Cup in Kelowna and we were really close and we didn't. And I think a lot of guys said, hey, we're hosting. We want to go in the front door and kick it down and win at home and do something that people hadn't done. And I think that opening run, I mean, the, we're not losing till Christmas time. And, you know, I mean, it really took the World Juniors to end that streak. And, uh, you know, it's a credit to the guys and their commitment and interest. But I think losing and getting as far as you can without re reaching your goal made a big difference. And I think the guys came back with the hunger and said, we're going to do this. And, you know, it just evolved into what it was. We are going to relive some memories for this next hour on London Live. Jim McKellar, who's now with the Chicago Blackhawks, assistant GM of that night's team. We have Brian Rodney, Drew Larman, Captain Danny Savrette from that team. Danny, maybe you can go back to that series against Guelph. And this is a happy time, so we don't want to talk too much about it. But how much did it fuel the start of that season? Yeah, I think, I think it, um, like Jimmy was saying, it. we left the, the playoffs knowing that we, we were so close, but we still needed to add something, right? Um, I think we were the, the top-rated team in the CHL at the time and we got uh, sort of knocked off by a, a little bit more of a veteran team in Guelph. We were still 18-year-old, uh, 17-year-old, 18-year-olds, a bunch of young kids with uh, the odd, like Dennis Weidman, older uh, veteran player. But um, it, it left a sour taste in our mouth. And I think uh, maybe I'll let these guys uh, speak a little bit. But um, the, the team went out and, and acquired guys like the two beside us to put us in a position to be a, a really great team and um, I mean like Jimmy was saying we were sort of the nucleus that were together at at the age of 17 18 and then our 19 year old year was the year we won but for you guys um, being guys that came in sort of as we are already a group how was it how was it like for you guys walking into a team that was going to be good and you guys obviously uh, uh, helped us out there was definitely um a winning culture for sure when I showed up. Uh, I think I was maybe three or four days before the season started. And, you know, as this, the start of the season began, there was no talk about winning. It was just uh, an attitude. You know, there was no rah-rah speeches needed from the coaches, from the captains, from each other uh, before games. Everybody showed up ready to play, uh, sort of knew their role. And, um, you know, I think we, we had a lot of success from that. 
Drew, you had to play against the London Knights for just yeah, a little just bit, being in Sarnia. That. So tell yeah. us a little bit about what that was like when this team would show up or when you would show up in London. Yeah, exactly. I was actually yeah, I was just thinking that, um, you know, I played right down the 402, uh, Sarnia, for two two years, and it was my third year that I got traded, and I was actually joking with Dale last night. I'm like, the only reason you got me is because you couldn't beat me. You couldn't beat me on face-offs. You're like, well, if we can't beat him, might as well get him on our team. <laughs> So, so we were, we were, I was, we were kidding about that. And, uh, yeah, I think I played them, I played, you know, the Knights once in that 10 streak. You guys won your 10 games against one of us in Sarnia. And, you know, I think it was only like the fourth or fifth game at that time. It wasn't like, you know, a huge thing, but, uh, it was like there, it was powerhouse. Like these guys came in and I remember Whitfield was on that team. So we were playing against him too. And he was playing and it was just like, who are these guys like it was kind of like who what are the what are these guys like kind of thing now what makes and a I'm team like, so great is it is it coming at you in wave after wave like yeah, they don't yeah, give you a break yeah, wave after yeah it was wave after wave didn't feel like uh as an opposing team that you you know you could even take a breath of fresh air it was always just like and then you're stumbling and yeah there's a lot of mis there was a lot of miscommunication and stuff and it was just like an overwhelming force and uh I was fortunate enough after 10 games into the season to jump ship and, uh, you know, I never looked back ever since. So it's been uh, a great honor. Walking into the Knights room the first time, being a member of the Sarnia Sting. I mean, we're talking about a big rival of the London yeah, Knights. Right. What was it like? And, and a dual citizen. Um, it was, you know, I was, I, it was, I was nervous, but I think, um, you know, I, I got on the ice about halfway through that first day I got traded. And I think on my second three-on-two, I went bar down. And then I was like, well, I can get used to this. Do you guys remember the same <laughs> well, I, thing? I don't think it was on Ryan, Danny, yeah. Jim? It wouldn't have been, for sure. <laughs> so maybe it was an empty net. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I had so much experience playing London that uh, I, I didn't have much of an adjustment period. And like Jim had said, um, the people that they did add a trade were – pieces that were you know like a defensive forward like they traded was that Matthias Olin like an import guy for the defensive forward like we had plenty of skill guys so getting um you know defensive forward grinder penalty kill like like me checking line center was obviously like one of the greatest chess moves ever <laughs> so you know like, yeah, yeah to be honest I mean we talked about a lot I mean when we build the team, I mean, Mark Hunter, myself, Dale, the group of people that were involved, it's you're trying to build a team. We felt we needed four top-pairing defensemen. We needed nine top six forwards. We needed 12 guys who could play in the top three lines, and we had that. And if you looked at our defense core, I, I really believe that you start, I mean, obviously we needed two goalies as well, but our defense core, any of them were the number one D on their own team. If they all went to individual teams, it would have been the top D. So we felt, and then we go through our lineup, and we had a lot of scoring. And we needed, you know, we had a lot of skill. But, you know, Drew was a huge piece because he came in and gave stability to the penalty kill and experience to face-offs. And he always knew what to do and block shots. And he took a lot of big face-offs. And as I said earlier, we took a lot of time to learn about Brian. We knew very well um, going through the London minor hockey program. But learning about Drew and asking background. And we want to make sure the pieces that came in filled the roles that we really needed them to, and to their credit, they joined it and said, hey, I'm, I'm a part of this and I want to be a big part of it. And they checked their ego at the door, to be honest. I mean, they could have, Drew could have played top two lines in Sarnia for another year, and, and he came in here and said, hey, I'll play in the 
third line if you want me to. I'll take face-offs. I'll block shots. Rods could have run the power play on any team in the league. Came to us and said, hey, I'll be a part of the, the top four here and play as much as I can and help contribute. And that was a tribute to their character, and that's why it worked. You know, we ended up with four top pairing D, and we ended up with three lines of guys who could play in the top two lines and 12 forwards that could play in the top nine. And that was sort of the, the formula from the boardroom, if it makes sense, when you put the pieces on the wall. And, you know, to credit to the kids, they did the job, and, and they, they saw it through, and it was a lot of fun to watch. Well, 90 games for the entire year, nine losses. First ever OHL championship for the City of London. First ever Memorial Cup. We will come back and talk about the streak. We will talk about facing... Sidney Crosby, the game that so many people still call the best game they've ever seen in London. Sure, it was fun to watch the Knights win the Memorial Cup, but that first game of the Memorial Cup, 4-3 in overtime, Mark Mathot, two goals and an assist in that game. We'll talk about that one too, and we'll relive some memories in behind the scenes. We have Jim McKellar, Brian Rodney, Drew Larman, and Danny Savret from the 2004-2005 London Knights with us tonight. They'll be honored as the Canadian Hockey League's team of the century. They're here right now on London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We've taken London Live around the corner to the Great Hall here at Chorus Radio London this afternoon because we are joined by Knights captain of the 2004-2005 Memorial Cup Championship team, Danny Sivret, Drew Larman, Brian Rodney, Jim McKellar from that team. We've got to talk about the streak because the streak is still alive. The record still exists. 29-0-2 to start a year. It sounds very ridiculous because... If you were to pick longest streak, where would you go? Double digits? Ah, somebody might get 20 games. From the start of a season, 29-0-2. Danny, you went your first 10 games, and you won them all. And in junior hockey, things go pretty quickly. You're playing three games in two and a half days. You're at practice the next day. You're at practice the day after that. You're playing again. When did you start realizing, hey, wait a minute, this is a thing? I mean, I think we would just go into every game wanting to win, so it never really cross their mind until probably around the 20 game mark when it's like, oh man, we're like a quarter of the way done the season and we haven't lost yet. Um, so I think that's sort of when it just started to be uh, like we were just, we just kept determining to win and win and win and, and keep on uh, keeping the streak alive as long as we could. But I, I don't think we ever stepped into a weekend being like, we need to win all three games. It was just the game at hand, we'd win the game, next one, you just keep going and going. And, and I think it, it helped, um, it helped us mature as a team um, because as it gained more momentum, I think every team that we played against, we were getting their best because everyone wanted to be David knocking us off, right? And uh, I, I think it, it really helped us come, to, come playoff time when, we, you know, when games mattered a lot more because we knew that we've already played 25 games where we've had the best of what they got to throw at us and we, and we kept on uh, succeeding. So. Um, I, I don't think we ever stepped into a weekend thinking we, we need to win all three. We, it was just, you know, one game at a time, and, and then it, it sort of snowballed from there. Wow. Little by little, you did get into 20 games, 30 games. Like you say, never saw a backup goaltender. Does any game stand out in that That's mix? Funny. There was, was a tie thinking. against Mississauga. There was the 0-0 tie against Guelph. Drew, yeah, is there that, one that sticks well, out to you? You're, you're, it's funny you said the 20-game mark. I, I don't know if you guys remember. I think it was like the 23rd-ish game. We, we were on a road trip in Barrie, and 
we 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 scored with like a, a two minutes left to go ahead, like, and um, and we were down by like one or two goals in the third period there, and after that it was just like, it was like the, like the next four or five games were just like a breeze, and it was like I don't know, was, I think it was being on the road, and there was a far road trip going to Barry, you know, you don't go to Barry often, and uh, we bonded on the road with some of our wins for sure and uh, and we and then coming home with a win from the road was just like oh well this is easy pickings now because we're at what the home ice advantage was absolutely crazy you fans out there just so thank you for you know this is your your championship as well as it's ours and um you know the, the home crowd was just picking us up every time we came home so that yeah that that 23rd ish game in barry on the road was one of my main memories that was like a huge pivot point for that streak. I uh, I don't really remember any specific game, but I know as the streak sort of to, you know, snake itself and get bigger and longer. And I know that helped, you know, whether we were going into a three and three, a third game on the weekend in Owen Sound in the afternoon, trying to protect that streak sort of was a little bit more motivation to get up and play hard and, and do your job and contribute. So, um, yeah, n no real one game, one moment, but just sort of as it built, you know, helping to add the motivation. And like Danny said, playing everybody's best game. I think uh, Sudbury maybe had guaranteed win night against us. <laughs> uh, and if you did, you got that. a free ticket. And I think we won 7-2. <laughs> sure. Well, um, you, had, you were responsible for stretching the streak to 31 games because there was the game, Danny, you'd already left for World Juniors. And you're playing Kitchener on a Sunday afternoon. It had been after the game against Guelph that was 0-0, the teddy bear toss game where no one really knew when to throw the Bears on the ice. So some of them came down, I think, during play, whatever it was to get the Bears down. But you're down 3 nothing to Kitchener. And you score three goals in the third period. You scored the winner in overtime in order to stretch it. I remember parts of that game, I guess, yeah. And that moment, I definitely didn't score too many overtime winners. So I remember... Uh, Trevor Kell gave me a good pass, and I luckily uh, got a good shot away and actually scored on a, a, a former teammate of mine, Dan Turple. And, um, so, yeah, I guess I had a little white lie there. There is parts <laughs> of the streak I do remember. It'll all come back. But these are, these are, like, I said the 20-game mark. You said the 23. Like, like, how many teams ever get to the 20-game mark? To Nobody's think remembering the fourth game. Yeah, right? Like, like, a team will go seven games and be, you know, well, that's a huge streak. But... We're, we're talking, we started to think about the streak in the game in the 20s, you know, it's... And I was just going to add to that, how about the NHL wasn't playing, and all of the media outlets were following us every game from probably game 13 on, I would say, 13, 14, once it got into the teens, every game we went to, all the national media was covering, and we were on every night, so not only did they have to go through the streak with the NHL going, the NHL was not around, so it was the biggest show on every night so you'd look and the highlights showed whether we won or won or not and as we were going through I remember the media interviews I'm like this is a complete circus we went to Sudbury which Sudbury's a wonderful hockey town they sold out they had guaranteed win night we went to Barrie guaranteed win night we went to Brampton and sold out Brampton on a Sunday afternoon and people wanted to see it and these guys had to do more interviews than probably any team outside of Toronto in the in the NHL I mean they were doing interviews every game and you know, under that scrutiny, they managed to make it all the way to, you know, 31 games. Just fascinating. How helpful do you think that attention was, Jim, when things really started to ramp up in terms of attention later on, like for the Memorial Cup? 
Well, I think Dan touched on it earlier. I think it really prepared the guys for the Memorial Cup where the, the focus of the hockey world was going to be on the Memorial Cup because there was no NHL playoffs. There was, you know, you're competing with baseball. It was the only hockey game going, and you were hosting, trying to be the champion. Sidney Crosby was coming to town. You know, they had their own long run at the end of the year, which we had to end at the Memorial Cup, which we did um, in the first game of the Memorial Cup. But ultimately, there was a lot of tension between, hey, when Ramuski plays London, what's going to happen? And these guys had gone through a year of pressure, and I think it just prepared them. They were calm. I mean, I can honestly say as we moved along, I know we're skipping ahead, but I remember Mark and I sitting in his office. I'll never forget this. We sat in his office the morning of the final, and we had swept through. You know, we'd lost two games just in time to win the Western Conference at home, the OHL final at home. We'd swept through the Memorial Cup, and we're sitting there on the Sunday morning, the final game, and we're saying, all of this is going to come down. It's going to end really well today. And we just sort of talked, and we had a calmness about our discussion. We just were sitting at 10 o'clock in the morning like we always did, and we were calm because we said, you know what, I think the group is fine. I'm not even worried. You're always a little bit nervous, but I think we got five minutes into that game, and I said, you know, Mark and I were sitting, and we just said, I think we're okay. You know, it's in the kids' hands, and they're comfortable. They've done it so many times. I think they're just going to plug in, and away they went, and they did. Near perfect game. We'll talk about the two games against Ramuski after Jacqueline LaBelle and news. We are here with Jim McKellar, Brian Rodney, Drew Larman, and Danny Sivret from the Memorial Cup Championship team of 2004-2005, honored tonight as the Canadian Hockey League's Team of the Century at Budweiser Gardens. They're here on London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPS. This is a heck of a reunion already, and the day is, in a way, just beginning. On London Live, we're in our own great hall. You can find us on Facebook Live. You can listen to radio while watching it on Facebook. So go ahead and do that right now at our 980 CFPL Facebook page. We have with us Danny Savret, Drew Larman, Brian Rodney, and Jim McKellar, all members of the 2004-2005 Memorial Cup champion London Knights. They'll be honored tonight as the team of the century. We've gone through the streak, if you're just joining us. You'll be able to go back on Facebook and watch that part. Let's go to the playoffs. You guys, 59-7-2 during the regular season. So, pretty crazy. And then you enter the playoffs, you win the first two rounds, but there was still not this belief that, yeah, we've got this. It, did you feel that in the dressing room, that it was still, like all of you have mentioned, game by game by game, Danny? Yeah, I mean, uh having the Memorial Cup in London we knew we were going to be in it we had a chance of winning the Memorial Cup whether we lost in the playoffs or not um, but I think just the the determination amongst us as individuals we were we were possessed to make sure that we won the OHL championship like we didn't want to be that team that got given a chance to win the Memorial Cup because we were the host city and um, I think we were just pretty we were pretty determined on making sure that that no one beat us and and I, I think that the, the streak at the start of the year helped us build that, you know, winning a atmosphere um, and, and ensuring that we would go in uh, the Memorial Cup through the front door instead of uh, just being handed a an opportunity. You played Kitchener in the third round. And, Jim, maybe you can comment on this because health had been pretty good all year. I mean, all of you played with a little bit. Everybody always through a big, long season like this is going to play with a little something. But... Against Kitchener, there were a couple little nagging injuries, and, and all of a sudden it wasn't maybe as easy, and Kitchener actually won a game, but Jim, it ended up working out okay because 
That brought Game 5, the clinching game, back to London. Yeah, the timing. I mean, that was, I think the guys would attest, that was probably the most physical series of the playoffs. And guys were battered, and they were really, Kitchener was taking a lot of runs at guys. And they had a big team, and I think Boris Valabek was on that team, and Ryan Donnelly. They had some big people that, you know, would try and run guys over. And, and they did, and there was a few guys get hurt. But other guys just sort of stepped into the roles and, you know, added a little bit more to it. And, I mean, if you're going to lose on time, you might as well get it right and win at home. And I think the timing was right to win the Western Conference uh, finals at home was nice. And it sort of led into the finals. But, yeah, I would say that was probably the most trying time physically on this group because obviously they're very skilled and competitive. But there were some guys that were taking some pretty healthy runs at guys. You advance to the OHL Championship Series. And, Brian, you have to face your old team in the Ottawa 67s. They got hot at the right time. They were actually the sixth seed that year, and it just really caught fire in the playoffs. What was that series like for you? Um, yeah, so the first game against Kitchener, I, uh, I hurt my knee, so I missed the rest of that series right. and then into some of Ottawa's series. So, um, no, it was, it was a tough test for us, for sure. They were, they were playing as a team, you know, similar to us. They played as a team. They had different lines that could score, and then uh, the, I think their goalie was probably their MVP. So, uh, you know, a good recipe there for some playoff success, and, and they had some. And, and um, yeah, it was uh, – I had played uh, in Kingston since that time in Ottawa, and I had been back, and I played Ottawa a few other times since then. So a lot of the players had turned over. So it wasn't too strange to play, uh, you know, an old team. Um, and I know, uh, you know, we were fortunate to, you know, be on the, the winning side of that series, and – um, it was it was a good um, stepping stone, you know, more uh, stronger competition moving on into the Memorial Cup and got us ready, and um, yeah, it worked out. You split the first two games at home, then you go to Ottawa, and you win game three to go up 2-1 in the series. You win game four to go up 3-1 in the series. And it almost seemed like the team exhaled for the first time all season because there had been so much pressure to keep a streak alive and then to keep being the team that you had been all year and then all of a sudden you were up 3-1 and Jim the team was flying back from Ottawa to London and that that whole it wasn't a celebration but it was just excited guys guys who were just excited to get home because they knew at the end was an opportunity to win a championship. Yeah, it went, uh, I mean, if, if I remember that series, we lost on a Sunday at home. We bust up there on the Monday, and then we played Tuesday and Thursday. We flew home Thursday night, and I was, we were just talking about it on the break. Um, we, we checked in with the bus when we flew home. When we landed, and the bus was taking our equipment home, and the trainers were on, and, and some of the uh, support staff, and, and they got to Kingston, and we were already home. So, you know, for the guys to be able to sleep in their own beds and be in bed by midnight, um, we knew that it was going to be a pretty good weekend. So, you know, coming home, you went from 1-1, sort of nervous, up there, win two, come back, and you say, well, if we went, put one more together, we're going to win this at home. So, and credit to the guys, they did. Well, Drew, yeah, the, that, that game, <laughs> that game five, a 6-2 victory over Ottawa. Does anybody remember with two minutes left, and I still don't know why it was with two minutes left, the whole crowd stood up, just this rush of energy. You would think it would come with one minute to go, but two minutes left, the whole crowd just gets to their feet. What was it yeah. like knowing that, that that was a championship? That was, that was the key to the front door. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think they might have knew this is, might be the last time they see this team on their ice. So, uh, you know, that's the great thing about um, Canadian spirit of hockey uh, being, you know, I'm, I'm an American, but I'm also a dual citizen. So I, 
um, just seeing how Canada uh, just really just supports hockey is so amazing, you know, looking at it from America. And I think a part of what you just said is a little bit of that Canadian spirit, like, okay, someone wins, someone loses, but seeing, like, a great uh, thing come together, like, that year, like, team of the century, I mean, we can all enjoy this, too, like, because everyone, everyone that has a memory about it was a part of it, in, in my opinion. And it was, yeah, then flying back, I mean, I felt like a pro. Like, I flying back on a charter flight, like you said, we were on in our beds by midnight, That and I was like, had been like it just didn't feel weird because I was so accustomed to being on the bus like as a junior player so it was kind of like are, are we on the next level is this the next level like and and then uh, you know it just rolled over into that final I remember my pregame nap for that game five against Ottawa was just, I, I couldn't sleep I didn't even sleep like I was just imagining <laughs> are you a good sleeper normally well, usually, yeah, pregame nap, I wouldn't have problems. But I, could, I, I couldn't sleep that, that day. It was just kind of like everything coming to completion and uh, just just the Canadian spirit like of, of just alive and winning. And, and the, other thing, an the other thing about that, uh, you know, a lot of the pressure in the talk was London had never won the OHL championship. So I know we've, we've talked a lot about the Memorial Cup and winning, but there was a lot of, you know, pressure to be the first time to win the franchise. It's been 40 years and... You know, there's a lot of things that went into that. So winning it at home in front of your fans and timing it right was just amazing. It was amazing to be a part of, but all the city was a part of it. I mean, the buzz in the community and, you know, around the arena and people looking for tickets and yeah. wanting to be a beer tent, and people being, wanting to be a part of it, and then to win the OHL title at home. And I will say, um, if you check, no one has gone in the front door and won the Memorial Cup since. So if you go through the Memorial Cups, I'm almost certain check it, but yeah. I'm almost, I check every year. And, I, I mean, a lot of those records I check to see, okay, everybody's lost, and <laughs> the records are safe again. Because the records that this team set, they'll talk about them tonight, but they're phenomenal. I mean, it's CHL records that are, won't be touched for a long, long time. And there's been a lot of really good teams play. And, um, but in the 13 years, Memorial Cup, you know, the winners have just, they've either gone in the back door. They have, there hasn't been the front door and home champion. It just hasn't happened, and hasn't happened since 2005. So, you know, I may be wrong, but I'm no, almost certain. No, no, I think you're right. It's so it's hard case, to do. There's so many. I mean, I go to the Memorial Cup now in my new job for every every year, and I go to it, and I say, okay, well, the champion's a champion, but in a lot of cases, they're not going in as the host, knowing they're in it, and winning their league on the way to it. And to me, that's what sets this team apart and, and makes it the team of the century, and it's, it's a fascinating thing to have been a part of and watch, but... It's an achievement that you win the OHL title first time for London and the Memorial Cup in the same year. It's, it's remarkable. We will take a quick break on London Live. Still to come, we'll talk about facing Sidney Crosby, facing the Ramouski Oceanic, the Memorial Cup, and that final true celebration when they did reach that top of the mountain. The team of the century with us. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We are here with... Danny Savret, Drew Larman, Brian Rodney, Jim McKellar, team of the century members. You've known them before May as 2004-2005 Memorial Cup champions, but as Jim was alluding to, there's a lot of accolades that come with this team, with the year that they had. So, team of the century, well, that's now on the resume. Let's look at facing Sidney Crosby. Let's look at the Memorial Cup to close out. In the dressing room, before that first game, Danny, Brian, your defenseman, 
you know that you're going to have to have him, his line mates, because this was a really good hockey team. They had a five-man unit that was pretty scary. Drew, you'd have to deal with him at times. How do you prepare for something like that? Uh, I, I think we would. I think it's safe to say that we were probably pretty nervous. Um, obviously, there was a lot of buildup around Sydney being, you know, the next coming of uh, of Wayne Gretzky and. Um, and, and facing a team that you don't really know their playing style. You can watch as much video as possible, but you don't really know their their competition or their tendencies. And, um, you know, the, I think the first period was, uh, you know, you're sort of just dipping your, your toe in the water just to test it out. And, um, and the first period didn't really go too well in our favor. But um, I, I think the, the intermission, it, it took, it was a quiet intermission. Um, I think everyone sort of, took a, a deep breath knowing that, you know, we're a better team than what we're, we're showing. And instead of reacting to what they're doing, let's go out and play like we have for the, the, the entire season up until this point. Didn't right off the opening faceoff, Sidney Crosby get the puck? Anybody remember what happened there, Brian? I think, I think yeah, he, uh, uh, he got shot down by uh, Danny, I thought. No. <laughs> he, we, uh, he slipped through our D and, and had a good chance. And like Danny said, there was a lot of uh, hype and... Um, Obviously, he had uh, a reputation, and seeing him on the ice immediately, it was, wow, he's the real deal, for sure. Uh, I think that was maybe the first time all season we sort of sat back and, and, and just see what happens instead of, um, you know, more or less dictating uh, the pace of play and dictating our style or our systems. We sort of, it was a bit of a feel-out process, and, you know, I think that only lasted 20 minutes because we came back in and sort of, like it was, it was a quiet, uh, you know, quietly intense intermission where we knew uh, we better get her going here. Or it's uh, this is all for nothing, and uh, you know, luckily we were able to, you know, write things quickly, and uh, and uh, luckily, you know, Mark Mathot had the hot hand that night, and uh, we were talking about uh, his goals earlier, and bring back brings brings back awesome memories. Okay, you score in the second period to make it three-two. Corey Perry ties it in the third period in overtime. Drew Corey Perry has the puck and he's going down the ice and Mark Mathot starts trailing in behind on a two-on-one. The crowd helps out at that point, right? Yeah, that's uh, to tell him he was there, two-two, like the crowd goes, <laughs> two, two-on-one, two-on-one. And, you know, Perry says pull up, sauce it over to him. And, you know, like it was just seeing Trotter's face too. He's like, <laughs> he's like, just put his arms out like, and like, yeah, like I can't even explain the, the crowd explosion reaction, on that yeah. bench. like. Like we all just like fired right across, like to to like, it was almost like, you know, because the Memorial Cup was like each one was almost like Game Seven because it was the tournament format. So yeah, like it's just so special. It's just a special tournament, like to coming together, like all those the the winners of all three leagues and just an amazing experience. Do you play the final a week and a day later? How perfect in your minds is that game looking back? Danny, how, how perfect was that game? Final game? Final game. Yeah, I think, uh, like, like we were saying, uh, the, we sort of felt out the first period against Ramuska. We, we knew that they obviously were an exceptional team, um, and that was sort of the, the biggest test that we had had in our, in our season was that one first period. And then um, we, like Brian was saying, in the intermission, you sort of internally reevaluate uh, yourself and we came out and, and we're a completely different team in the second and third and then 
Um, coming into the final, we're playing a team that we know if we just dictate our play, we can take over this game. And I think um, it was a very efficient game. There was uh, the game of hockey is all about mistakes, and there was uh, very few mistakes. I think uh, on, on our side. Um, I, I don't know, Jimmy. You've seen a lot of hockey in in your day. Um, I, I know for myself, uh, being a player, I think that was probably the most efficient uh, game I've been a part of. Where um, you know you're playing against probably arguably the other best team in in Canada, and um, and it was a, a dominant uh, showing on our part. Yeah, one thing I remember about it. I mean, it's funny the memories you have, but I remember guys took really short shifts like very efficient i shouldn't say short efficient shifts they were on the ice and off the ice and they did everything they were supposed to do and then they got off the next wave came on came on and it just seemed to wave after wave and then we scored goals and got up and you know adam dennis was outstanding and one story i want to tell about adam because um he's not going to be here tonight but he's uh, a big part of this and one of the things the behind the scenes that were sort of fun he uh, he and gerald coleman shared the goaltending and they and they truly shared it. I mean, all the way through, they went back and forth, which can be a challenge. And, and I can remember, even in the Memorial Cup, they both played two games. And I remember the last game. I remember Adam's very competitive and, and always has been. And I remember the last sort of – he didn't play the Thursday game, and he, was, he really wanted to play the final. And I remember he paced back and forth when we were skating and getting organized. And, and he finally just said, enough's enough. He went into Dale's office and said, look, put me in the net. You won't, you won't regret it. And to Adam's credit, he pitched a shutout in the – in the final. And to me, that's, I mean, you call your shot, but he called his shot. And he said, he went right into Dale's office and said, put me in the net and I will have it. And it's no discredit to Gerald or, or credit to Adam. It's just, he had the substance to just say, hey, I'm good. I'm going to, I can get it done. And that was what the team was about. And that's just another example of sort of prepared and, and character and wanting to win. And you know, it, to me, it was one of the unique ones I'll, I'll never forget. It's unfortunate he's not going to be here tonight. He's coaching his team, but he, uh, he was a big part of it. And, you know, we talk a lot about all the players, and, you know, certainly Adam, that behind the scene meant a lot to, to this team. 27 saves. There are so many things to fit in, reactions in the dressing room. We may not get to a lot of those, but who wants to tell the Brandon Press breakaway story? Danny, can you tell that one? <laughs> I, can, I can touch on that one, yeah. The video is out there. You can, anyone can go and watch it. Um, it it's funny when you're in the moment um, – I'm obviously speaking on, on his behalf, but um, we're, we're up 4 nothing. The, the crowd's counting down uh, the clock. Um, uh, the puck's in our own end. I think someone maybe chips it out, and, uh, and he goes full bore, like head down as hard as he can, and the buzzer's already gone. Everyone's unloaded from the bench, and here he is going the opposite way, looking for a breakaway uh, to either make it 5 nothing or, um, or get a chance for himself. But... Uh, it was funny just to, to see the reaction of everyone, the entire building, all the players piling off the bench, and he's the one guy going the opposite way looking for to finish his breakaway. To his defense, wasn't he going to get the puck? He was going to get the game Oh, puck. he had it. He had it already. But you know what that does? That shows what this team was like. That's how closely they played it to the very end. Up 4 nothing, and you still never know. Ramuski was that talented. Well, tonight, we honor the most talented team in the Canadian Hockey League in 100 years. The team of the century. 90 games, 81 times they left the ice without losing. Only nine losses all season long. OHL champions, Memorial Cup champions. Guys, we can't thank you enough for being here to do this.
Well, thanks for this. Thanks for having us. Thanks for 13 and plus years ago for everything you brought to this city. Thanks to all the fans. The horns are still ringing around. They they honked up and down Richmond Row. And you, if you if you stop and listen, you can still hear the echoes. The 0405 Memorial Cup Championship team. Danny Sivret, Drew Larman, Brian Rodney, and Jim McKellar. We'll take a break. News is next with Jacqueline LaBelle on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Well, that was fun. We're back in the studio now. And we've got a few other things to talk about. We've got one other person. This just happened. He he wants to talk to us at some point this hour because he can't be here tonight. Dan Girardi of the Tampa Bay Lightning is going to join us this hour. We're spending some time talking London Knights today. The team of the century is being honored tonight. And Tampa Bay happens to have a game tomorrow. So Dan Girardi was unable to fly in. But... He has contacted us, said, hey, I'd, I'd love just to, to say a few things and tell a few of his own memories. So we'll do that before the end of London Live. We are also going to talk about the Juno announcement that has been made today and the fact that the first band who will be performing at the Junos has been unveiled. There will be other announcements that come up, and that band will be Loud Luxury. And you've got... One half of the band from London, one half of the band from Mississauga, but went to Western. So you talk about amazing connections to London and a perfect band to kind of lead things off as far as performances go for the celebration that will be the Junos. Loud Luxury is it. And so we will hear from them. We had a chance to talk with them after the news conference earlier this morning. So we'll hear from them this hour. If you want to tell some London Knights stories while the team of the century is honored, we'll do that this hour as well. If you want to tell any stories or memories that you have from it, we'll have the phone lines open, and you can email me anytime, mike at 980cfpl.ca, or you can give me a call, 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. You may have been in the dressing room after the Memorial Cup game, because I'm pretty sure. How many people would London have had in it at that point as far as population goes? We're about 358,000. About that? Yeah. I think about 300,000 people were in the dressing room. I think about that many. It was unbelievable. It was it was a celebration, and that's what it was. Nobody was misbehaving. It was a celebration. But Danny Savret, who you heard from last hour, it was about an hour after the game, and the only thing he had managed to take off were his skates. That's it. He was still in full gear. Well, and his helmet. But he was still in full gear and was still going around. There were just so many people to hug. That's why I think there were about 300,000 people in that dressing room. So fantastic to be able to catch up with all of those guys. But if you want to share a memory, please feel free to do so. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. And we'll get caught up on how things are going in preparation for the Junos coming up in March. But it's more than just the awards show. It's more than just the weekend. You're going to be able to be out walking around. Here's hoping we get some nice weather in March. Can happen. And everybody's just out walking around the sidewalks in downtown London because that's what this is about. That's another celebration, celebrating the musical talent that this country produces. So we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. You'll hear from Loud Luxury. We'll also tell you about the news conference from today. And Dan Girardi will join us, and we'll have a few other night stories before the end of London Live as well. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
It is going to be a beautiful weekend, at least by November standards. Well, at least tomorrow. If you can make it a three-day weekend, probably not a bad idea to do it. John Wilson has been pointing at nice positive temperatures, even some sunshine for tomorrow. We're getting some nice stuff right now. We will have news that starts in about 45 minutes from now. But in the meantime, we mentioned Dan Girardi of the Tampa Bay Lightning, a member of that 2004-2005 London Knights team, had contacted us. He's not able to be here, of course. Tampa Bay plays tomorrow against the Chicago Blackhawks. And that's really, it seems, the only reason any of the guys who aren't going to be here from the team of the century to be honored at Budweiser Gardens are not able to be here. That's how closely knit, that's how much these guys care for each other, is they have other hockey-type stuff going on. Adam Dennis is going to be coaching with the North Bay Battalion, so he can't make it. Mark Mathot is with the Dallas Stars. Corey Perry is able to be there. He's going to be there tonight because, unfortunately, he's rehabbing an injury right now but did get permission from the Anaheim Ducks, who played last night, so that he could come to London and be a part of it. And Dan Girardi with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and he joins us now on London Live. Dan, we were just talking with... Jim McKellar and Brian Rodney and Drew Larman and Danny Savred. And and one of the things maybe we didn't get to enough or didn't stress enough is the fact that you guys, you just didn't sit back and say, yeah, we're we're good. Was there any point during even the, the run-up through the playoffs and the Memorial Cup that you were such a part of after being acquired by the Knights that you looked around and said, boy, well, we are good, or, or thought how history might look back on you? Um, you know, obviously we knew we had a really good team and, and, uh, playing against them the first half of that 2004, 2005 season, obviously seeing how much talent they had and, you know, the, the win streak they went on. And, uh, you know, then when I got traded there, I knew this was a good opportunity for me to hopefully, you know, win the OHL and them cup. And, um, yeah, I didn't think we lost many games that year, even in the playoffs. And it was just, uh, one of those things where you felt like you come to the rink and, you know, you you pretty much knew you're gonna win every night, which was a great feeling to have, and uh, it was a great group of guys. And you know, obviously, it's a it's a run and a, and a team that I'll play out forever. Remember, you had played with the Guelph Storm the year before and had won a championship with Adam Dennis, who came over with you from Guelph in that trade. You guys knew what it took to win an OHL championship. You come into a room where it just seemed to be filled with leaders and captain material and that kind of thing. Did you guys? bring that here's how it goes here's what it takes to win with you um i'm not sure but i i just i just know that like you said all the leadership we had in the room and i think me and adam were able to just come in and kind of do our thing what we did the year before you know just you know have the playoff experience and, and know knew what it took and uh yeah i think we just kind of tried to blend in as best we could obviously it was a weird thing first coming in the room being a you know big time rival with london you know, coming from Guelph and obviously beating them the year before to go on to the, you know, OHL championship um, was definitely something a little strange, and I'm sure it was strange for some of the fans and the, and the team, but um, we were welcomed in, you know, with open arms, and, and the team and organization was so good to us, and, um, you know, we were very excited to be able to come to a team like that. Dan Girardi of the Tampa Bay Lightning joining us as we talk about the 0405 London Knights team of the century. Take us back to that year before, that seven-game series, and what it was like to be on the other side of it. What do you remember from that series that you won and then went on to win an OHL championship? 
Well, I remember, you know, obviously coming into that building, you know, it was always hard to play in, full every night. It was a hard place to play and you know, to win game seven there. And it, it, that was a pretty big feat for our team. We had a very old team. It was a lot of 19-year-olds. And, um, yeah, it, it was definitely uh, definitely a really hard-fought series. And I remember there was a lot of hatred between the two teams. And, you know, I, I remember the fans yelling at us in London when we won. It was, it was pretty crazy. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, it was a, it was a really hard-fought series. And I think we were pretty much the underdog in that series. But, uh you know, it was uh, it was fun, but obviously, um, you know, we won the OHL, but uh, didn't have a great showing in the in the Mem Cup in Kelowna. But um, you know, redeemed ourselves the next year. Me and Adam with uh, with you guys here in London. You mentioned it was a little different walking into that night's dressing room because of that whole experience, because of that series. Did you and Adam walk in the door together? Um, I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't want to say we did, but I just I just remember the first time coming in there it was just. Very weird. Didn't didn't have a clue where to go. You know, going to the visiting locker room probably in that direction. No no idea what's happening. There. But uh, like I said, everyone welcomed us in. You know, so greatly. It, it was like I, it was like we were there for four years. You know, I think we we really appreciated that, and I think that helped us with our transition coming from obviously a rival at Guelph and and obviously blending in with the guys. Great. Dan Girardi of the Tampa Bay Lightning joining us. Dan, how about that game that opened the Memorial Cup? It's still a game that Knights fans will say is the best game they've ever seen in London. Playing Sidney Crosby. What do you remember from that? Well, you know, it, it was a little bit of a long time ago, but not much. But uh, I do remember it, it being an amazing game. And like I said, uh, it was, uh, you know, obviously going against the best best junior hockey player in the world and, and uh you know, very hard to play against that guy. You know, it was a very back-and-forth entertaining game, and, um, you know, uh, that's one of the games I'll definitely remember for a long time. You still play against Sidney Crosby on a pretty regular basis. Is he still that hard to handle? Uh, yes, definitely. Obviously, being a three, you know, three-time Stanley Cup champion and, and from my time in New York playing against him uh, a lot of times, you know, I think I, I think when we were, just, we were just there a couple days ago and, you know, I think I played sixty something games against uh, the Penguins. That's that's a lot of games against one team, and pretty much they're all against Sydney. So, um, yeah, very very hard guy to play against. And um, you know, we don't like to see when you see Pittsburgh on the schedule. You don't like to see uh, you knowing you have to play against that guy. Obviously, now I don't really I don't really match up against the top lines anymore, which is not a bad thing right now. So, um, I think uh, playing against him for a long time was definitely tough. Your career has been absolutely phenomenal. When you look back at, at what it's taken to play in the NHL, what do you point to? I think the biggest thing, well, for me personally, was uh, consistency. Uh, you know, bringing the same effort, intensity, night in, night out. You know, obviously, being undrafted and not knowing what was going to happen in my career after the Memorial Cup in London. Um, I really prided myself on you know, just really working hard in summers, you know, getting better at whatever I could. And, you know, once I got up to the NHL in January 2007, I tried to tell myself, you know, I'm not, I'm not going back to the Miracle League. I just tried to, you know, play the same way every night, you know, make the first simple pass, you know, not do anything spectacular. And I was able to, you know, obviously still be playing and have a great career so far. One of the things that you do so well is block shots. That can't be easy night after night. You talk about being consistent. That's something you have to do night after night. Yeah, it's uh, it's not always the the most fun job out there, but that's uh, 
you know, that's a big part of the game these days uh, is blocking shots and letting the, you know, making sure the goalie can, you know, see the right angle and, and making sure you're in a good spot to block the shot. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a big part of my game and uh, it's definitely given me success to this stage of my career. You go back to that game, the Memorial Cup final, that you guys were willing to do anything that game. And I think your hand wasn't feeling too good at that time, was it? No, I, I'm pretty sure if they had a, I had a broken hand. I think they told me after the game I had a little a fracture in my hand. But um, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely you know one of the games I remember. You know, being on the ice in the final buzzer, my final junior game. You know, being able to win the Memorial Cup with a great group of guys, and you know, I, it was just such a such an amazing feeling to have friends and family there, all the guys, and that's something I'll remember for a long time. Being on the ice, you were one of the first guys to kind of get hit by the pile of guys coming off the bench. Did <laughs> you survive that okay? Yeah, I think uh, I think once the the final buzzer went, and you know, we're I kind of went to Adam there, and I think Brian Rodney was right there with me, and uh, it was like I did a blur from there on. I really don't know exactly what happened, but um, yeah, that's uh, you know, still talk about that sometimes. Obviously, now being the team of the century, uh, it's obviously a very great achievement. And, um, yeah, it's a big-time memory in my hockey career for sure. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your memories with us. Everything else is going on all right in life? Oh, yeah. I can't can't beat the Florida lifestyle here in Tampa. The weather's great every day, and um, it's a great place to play, and i got a great group of guys here too. Well, you have a fantastic team. Best of luck. Hopefully you get to do a little more celebrating later on. Yeah, hopefully. Take care. Thanks, Dan. All right, thank you. Dan Girardi, Tampa Bay Lightning member of that London Knights team of the century. He talks about the Florida lifestyle. If you weren't able to catch our Facebook Live with Danny Savrett and Brian Rodney and Jim McKellar and Drew Larman, you have to go back. And I don't know whether the camera will pan down low enough to see it. Drew lives in Florida right now. And he had the the shoes on that are like the gloves, the glove shoe. He says that's all he ever wears or nothing, lives on the beach Enjoying life. Things are going fantastic. So a little bit of a reunion going on in London throughout the day today. What else is happening? Well, we are going to be talking Junos in 10 minutes from now. Maybe, well, let's call it 15. 15 minutes from now. Because there was an announcement that was made today at Budweiser Gardens. And it deals with the fact that Loud Luxury is going to be playing and you will know their song. We'll, we'll play a little bit of it, but you will know the song that's now gone seven times platinum for them. And they're hoping it goes diamond. So we'll hear from Loud Luxury before the end of the show. I don't even know what diamond is. But along with that, you've probably heard that the Liberal government is moving to end the Canada Post strike. Have you been affected by the Canada Post strike? I don't know. I, I don't know that I have. And I think this is something that the government really has to look to. What were we talking about a little earlier on on London Live last week? We were talking about whether Internet needs to be an essential service. And in 1981, it was guaranteed that all Canadians would have access to mail. Because in 1981, that's what you needed. Well, in 2018, I still don't believe you do. And... I have many mail carriers who are friends, and I don't want to see anything happen to them. However, if you are making CDs, if you are making cassette tapes, you must find a way to conform or else you are left behind. And just because it was guaranteed back in 1981, 
that we have mail delivery service, I don't know that that's something that that we need to look at in 2018 and say, hey, we've got to do everything we can to keep this service the way it is, to protect this service the way it has been. Now, I know that Canada Post has said, hey, we're willing to make some changes. We're willing to do this. But this is a difficult fight. This is a really difficult fight because this, I think, is one of the first times you've had people say, oh, is the Canada Post strike still on? Because you're not sure. Because you don't go to the mailbox every day. And after a while, the mail is still getting through. So I have a couple magazine subscriptions. I love going to the mailbox. I really enjoy it. But I don't mind going once a week. Really don't mind. If I'm getting one of my magazines once a week, it's because, hey, I had time to go to the mailbox, which means I have time to read that magazine. Bills not coming in the mail. The essential service that we need to be focused on right now is broadband wireless. That's what we need to be focused on. And somehow the two discussions have to get together. I don't know that they will, but somehow they have to. There is a new weevil species that's been named after Jose Bautista. You have to go to 980cfpl.ca and see this. First off, to even realize what a weevil is, I had no idea that was a weevil. They've had to blow it up because a weevil is, I want to say, four millimeters in length. It's not a big creature. And someone has found a new weevil that is native to the Dominican Republic. And because of that, they've decided to name it after Jose Bautista. Cicoderis Bautistae is the name of this little weevil. Apparently, weevils can fly. They buzz around. Uh, They have long snouts. They're not a particularly attractive species. Jose Bautista is a far more attractive creature than this particular weevil. But you have to take a look at, first off, what a weevil is so that you know what that is. And secondly, that we've had one named after Jose Bautista. And then something this morning that the 980 CFPL news team was able to uncover, and that is that Terry Lynn McClintock is back to the Grand Valley Institution for Women And that is in Kitchener. You can remember she was at the Aboriginal Healing Lodge that there was quite the public uproar about it. And this proves, and I still go back to Rodney Stafford, the father of Tory Stafford. He talked about this and the idea, the just the sound of his voice saying one small voice can make a difference. And he proved that he had people with him on Parliament Hill who went not because they knew him. Not because they had known Tory Stafford, but because they felt they wanted to go. They wanted to be there. They were strangers to him up to that moment, but they wanted to show that they felt this was not right. And we don't do that a lot in Canada. We don't do that much. And yet it happened here. And now, just to update the situation, Terry Lynn McClintock has been transferred back to Kitchener. So... What does that mean? Well, it may have mean or may have meant that she went to Edmonton just in order to work out where she was going to go next. Grand Valley Institution for Women is one of six federal facilities that women can be placed in in Canada, has about 215 minimum and medium security prisoners. Remember, Terry Lynn McClintock is classed as a medium security prisoner. It does have kind of apartment styles. It's not... We're not talking about a six foot four iron bar cell here. It's kind of an apartment style, but she is in a medium security, and that is 
where she has been placed in the past. So that's where she is right now. But that protest on November 2nd on Parliament Hill, that made a difference. And one small voice, yeah, can make that difference. We have news coming up with Jacqueline LaBelle. She'll have details to a greater length on some of these stories and other stories. And then we will talk about the Junos. We'll hear from Loud Luxury. One part Western, one part London, Ontario, and looking to go diamond. Don't know what that is. We're going to find that out. And Chris Campbell is going to join us. He has been instrumental in getting the Junos to come to London. We'll talk about what some of the latest news is about the Junos. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. It's been a big day of celebrity status in London, Ontario. We've got the team of the century in town tonight for the London Knights. Corey Perry's going to be there. Rob Schramp, Danny Savrant, Dave Boland. A lot of players that you may not have seen in a long, long time. Brian Rodney and Drew Larman were here with us as well. Knights assistant GM at the time, Jim McKellar, was here. He's now with the Chicago Blackhawks. So lots of star-studded status. And then we had an announcement letting us in on more about the Junos, which are coming to London in March. So let's see. We're in November right now, right? Late November. We should start talking about holiday shopping days and how few of them there are left. But late November, so late December, January, February, we're less than four months away from the Junos. And if you've never been in a city that has hosted the Junos, find someone who has and ask them about it. Hey, what's that about? It is an absolute blast. Remember Country Music Week? Remember how fun that was? Well, that's kind of what happens, but we're talking about all music. So it is going to be a tremendous time. We're going to talk more about what today's announcement was all about, the amount of money that is already helping this community that has been raised. And it is, you know, here's, here's an issue that I have. Before we get into the good stuff, here's an issue that we do have to look at with a pretty serious face. We've had the Doug Ford government say basically that they're going to take a look at school systems, right? And school programs and schools that were going to be built. And they're looking to save money. And they may not be able to get it very readily out of health care. They're looking at everything. Well, they are going to look at education. And one of the things that has been taken out of schools is musical instruments. Not every school. Some schools do still have them. But a lot of schools have lost their music programs. And that didn't even happen under the Doug Ford government. This has been going on. But if we're looking to save money, do you think if you put in a pitch as a school to fix your roof or to buy three saxophones, two trombones, seven clarinets, and a few flutes, which one is going to get the pass? It's probably going to be fix the roof. And even then, it might be down a list behind other schools that need to fix other things. And that's a reality that we may have to face. So there was news today at the announcement on the Junos about things like music programs at schools and how we might have to fund them and how we might be able to fund them. It's good news. Trust me. And we'll talk about it in just a minute. But the other thing that we happened to have at the announcement today was more star-studded status. Because coming in from Los Angeles, uh, 
two guys who have done a pretty phenomenal job becoming superstars in the music industry coming out of London, Ontario and Mississauga, Ontario. But Joe DePace is from London. Andrew Fettick is from Mississauga, but came to Western. And we had a chance to catch up with these guys and take them back, rewind them back to when they were living in a house in London, Ontario, and ask them at that moment, if you were to think back, being in a living room or being in a, a bedroom trying to mix music, do things, could they ever have pictured getting to where they are now? Um, not really. Like, we, it was kind of a pipe dream always, but, I mean, like, when we were doing it back then, it was just, like, a couple of kids, like, just yeah. shooting for the moon, you know what I mean? So where do you start? I'm picturing a room... I'm picturing a couple computers at least yeah, and a whole lot beers. of couple beers, okay, yeah. and a lot of creativity. Yeah, yeah. You know, it all started, you know, we used to hang out at Joe's house right on Raymond Street, like right off Richmond up there. And, you know, we would just be working on music nonstop and like, you know, messing around on his turntables in his bedroom. And that's where it all started. And, you know, we started getting some gigs here, playing some things for the yeah. university. Played a lot and, of stuff in, at the music hall as yeah. well. Like that's kind of, they were sort of the first ones to put us yes. on. We were like opening for shows and just... Like, literally playing for 15 minutes at some times, like, just to open and be a part of it, you know what I mean? And then one thing led to another, and then there was a point where I remember we sat down right after we'd graduated from Western, and we're like, we can do this, you know what I mean? This is no longer, like, a dream, like, let's, you know, put our nose to the grind, and we did, move to Los Angeles, and now we're here. So when you moved to Los Angeles to do that, where do you guys live? Because you're, you're uh, kind of starting out. Funny story. So we actually, uh, unbeknownst to us, moved into the apartment that Charles Manson lived in before he went to jail, obviously. It wasn't haunted or anything like that. He didn't kill anybody there, so very thankful for that. But, uh, yeah, we lived literally in a one-bedroom, I think it was like 700-square-feet yeah. apartment. Slept in the same bed, not yeah. fun. Eating oatmeal every day, you know, dessert would be going to McDonald's like it was a not glamorous lifestyle and what were you paying for the oh, luxurious lifestyle absolutely way more than we should have like Vancouver house prices probably yeah. way more than we should have and then what changed so take us to the moment where everything just changed honestly when we released body like it's not like we just released it and then like things started happening like there's a lot of little wins like we have yeah. we would release a song and it would do well and like get like like certain accolades and stuff like that and it's yeah. just like a, a snowball people, effect so people like to think of a musician's journey as like hitting a home run from home plate on your first go when in reality it's like you know, you're doing little things to get you on some multiple bases. You get on third base, and then that was sort of just the thing that brought us home, you know. And after that, you know, we've been touring the world, you know, meeting so many fans. It's just been incredible. Seven times platinum, guys. Great, Can't wait great. to see where you guys go. Can't wait to see you at the yeah, Junos. Diamond. Hey, yes. what is diamond? Ten. Ten times yeah. platinum. No Almost way. There. Yeah. Almost there. All right. We'll watch for this. Thanks so much for this. Hey, thank you thank so much you. for having us. Take care. Right there, we have London's own Joe DePace and Andrew Fettick, originally from Mississauga, but went to Western, and they graduate from Western. They say, we can do this. And so they go to Los Angeles and have to rent an old apartment that was once rented by Charles Manson, and they eat oatmeal, and it happens slowly, but you know what? It has happened. Body has been an absolutely enormous song. Love No More has been a good song for them. And now they'll be performing at the Junos. We'll talk about them and a few other Juno-related things. Like we mentioned, musical instruments and music programs are going to be thrilled that London has hosted the Junos. And London hasn't even done that yet.
Chris Campbell joins us next. You're listening to London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We've had so many guests on the show today. This has been a lot of fun. Joining us right now is the chair of the Juno's Host Committee, Mr. Chris Campbell, as we talk about a pretty major announcement this morning, actually a series of announcements. Why have one announcement, Chris, when you can have about four? Yeah. Wow. Unbelievable. Just such an unbelievable <laughs> time for London right now. So it's a lot of fun. Well, we heard from London Live. We heard yeah. from Joe and and the fact that we've got guys, or sorry, we London Live's the show. We heard yeah. from Loud Luxury. We, <laughs> we heard from Joe and we heard from Andrew and how excited they are to be coming in and performing. Uh, but we have some other things that you did cover off as well. And one of them deals with musical instruments mm-hmm. and music programs and the benefit that we're going to see from the Junos. Who knew there yeah. were residual benefits from the Junos? Yeah. And that's, I mean, well, Music Counts supports, nationally supports uh, different programs uh, for for children and puts musical instruments into kids' hands that need them the most. Um, certainly there are organizations and there's different funding streams within that. Some Band-Aid goes to schools and there's also community, different community programs. Um, that London, London, uh, there's many applications out there right now from London, uh, you know, schools and that type of thing. But what we have been raising money for is just generally for music counts, you know, from the start. And we've raised over, we announced today we've raised over a hundred thousand dollars from a dollar ticket initiative that we started with a few of the venues. That is a so wait a minute. You've raised a hundred thousand dollars for this program. The Junos aren't more, here yet. More than more that. than a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. The Junos and it aren't will continue here yet. to grow. Yeah, and it will continue to grow. And so who who knows what it'll be by then? You know, but uh, it's going well, and that will fund a lot of different schools or community organizations. Um, all over the place, you know, in addition to London. So it's, it's wonderful. Because music has become one of those things that is an extra to kids' yeah. lives all of a sudden. It used to be, hey, time to go to music class. And while you still have music class, sometimes playing an instrument isn't something that gets to happen. That's right. Music or arts education, for yeah. that matter, is, is, you know, is always, you know, it seems to be on the chopping block when it's so integral to the development of a young child. And you think of, a, even if you're not going to, play, you know, in a band and ever take the stage at the Junos, it's just similarly to sports. You think about that. Think of all the kids that play minor hockey and you think of the benefit of that. Well, how many of them are going to make it to the NHL? Not many, but how many of them are going to learn a skill set of working with people and et cetera, et cetera, um, building their confidence, exercise, all that? Well, it's the same thing with music. You're, I mean, it helps you socially. It helps with your creativity. It helps with, you know, uh, so much with child's development. It helps with your math skills. And and, uh, and it's just an, it's an incredible um uh, part of development and it's overlooked. And so this really, you know, it's, it's actually unfortunate that you need music counts to do this, but, um, um, it's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, charity and it makes sense for the development of, uh, young children. And so there are still tickets that will be sold that still get a dollar oh, yeah. per ticket. That continues. So that, that program started, we announced it, uh, you know, that was part of our, you know, our bid and, and, and we, uh, that's, that started the day we announced the Junos. So every show that went on, every concert that went on sale after the Junos was announced in London and then will continue after that. So for every, uh, every, a dollar for every ticket. 
Okay. Well, over $100,000 raised already. Mm-hmm. And as we mentioned, the Junos, a little over three months away now. I don't want to tell you that date. I'm, I'm sure you, <laughs> you already know it. But you think about it. What else were you looking back on this morning as you made your announcements? Well, Juno Cup was announced uh, as well. And Ju- the Juno Cup um, will be going on sale the same day as the, uh, as the broadcast, the 40th annual Juno Awards uh, tickets go on sale. Juno Cup is a $20 ticket, and it's a lot of fun. It's NHL players and musicians. And, all and they're the, head-to-head, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's a great family event. That'll take place actually at the Western uh, Fair Sports Center. And, um, you know, Jim Cuddy's the the team captain. It's it's a riot. Um, it's a lot of fun and, uh, and uh, just a great time for NHL players and you know, the musicians to get out there and play hockey. It was a great, great event to to bring your kids out to. And it sounds like the NHLers don't necessarily go easy on the musicians because no. I think the no. musicians have maybe <laughs> pulled out one kind of scrape it out, lucky yeah. bounce kind of win. There's some there's some good players, though. Yeah, but uh, no, they don't go easy on them by no <laughs> means. No. Okay, so that will be played at Western Fair, at Sports Center at Western Fair? Yeah, that'll be on the Friday of, uh, of June week. And there's many other announcements. Um, that that'll obviously be following many announcements, uh, you know, for different events going on sale and lots of exciting things. But uh, yeah, for today it was the uh, that and also great, you know, with Loud Luxury being announced as the first, you know, live act to perform. That's that's incredible to have a, an act. I I'm who knew, you know, when we got this thing that we would have a, a London based artist, you know, that the fat was started here on the stage. That doesn't happen. I don't care where you are. You know, that doesn't happen as often as you think, you know, so just an incredible moment. And they were here recently, basically headlining. So, that's I mean, right. that's how big they are. Even oh, yeah. if you don't know Loud Luxury, you've got to talk to somebody who's somewhere between the ages of 14 and 30. They'll know who Loud Luxury is. That's right. And they're just the nicest guys, you know. They are. Yeah, very talented. Flew in from L.A. They were telling the story of moving out to L.A. after graduating <laughs> Western and renting Charles Manson's old apartment and eating oatmeal and... <laughs> McDonald's was uh, dessert, they called it. If you could yeah. actually afford something on the McDonald's menu, you were doing okay. Well, yeah. now they're doing they're okay. They're doing great, and they're going to be on the big stage. And that big stage is going to be in London. So so tell us how the big stage works, because we are going to hear mm. more about announcements and other performances on the big stage. Mm. What is that? Wow. That, that, that whole process is being organized well, right now. You know, there's, there's people at the venue from the production side, and they're meeting with the event management people, and they're... They're working out all those details. So and, does and it act started... like a concert away oh, yeah. from the it, show, or is this uh, during the, the, actual the Junos? Award, the actual award show you're talking about? Yeah, just where Loud Luxury is going to perform. Oh, they'll be performing on on, on the show. So, that I don't so have that's any, on the show, okay. They'll be on, yeah, I don't have any details as to the nature of that, but yeah. no, that would be on the show, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. But we're going to hear more artist announcements Abs- as to oh, be, who's here, who's you're coming. You're going to see a packed show. Yeah, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. But the week itself, you've already talked about yeah. so many different events. This is one mm. that you don't just say, hey, reserve the weekend. Make sure you reserve more of the week leading up, right? You keep oh, calling yeah. it Juno Week. Oh, it is. It very much is. There's probably about 80 events. Vancouver had over 200 artists, and we will too. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it it'll literally will take over the, the entire city and beyond. Chris Campbell joining us, chair of the Juno's host committee. Chris, you look at the work to get it. Yeah. it. Is it still, you know, things are flying so fast you haven't taken time to appreciate it? Or can you sit back and say, yeah, 
The Junos are coming to London, or do they need to be here for that to happen? No, they no, not rushing it. <laughs> we need some time. Um, no, the truth is we have uh, an incredible team, and uh, I wouldn't be nearly as relaxed if we didn't have the team that we have behind this, um, because there's the you know the whole event side of things, and there's a whole team behind teams and then there's the operation side of it there's a stuff you don't see and it'd be interesting maybe to talk to you about that someday because you get you know on the operation side you're going to have people from parks and rec and operations and waste management and parking and city security all i mean it takes a, it's an army of people right but they make it happen the london police department the fire department alcohol and gaming like everybody you know is working to make the event safe fun, memorable. And then on the event side of it, you have uh, a whole number of people and organizations so um, that are producing um, spectacular events and memorable events that, you know, that people remember that, they, you know, where they were when this happened in London. So See? Yeah. And we still sit back and say, well, London is this kind of a city, but we're not. We're now- Just wait. We're we're anywhere any other yeah. city is. That's where we yeah where we want to raise the bar on an amazing event. It's difficult to do, but we have the the people in place uh, that I believe that we can do it. Okay, so music cares. Music counts. Or sorry, music counts. Yeah. Uh, is there a hashtag that people can check out for oh, that? Or is I don't that... have that. There is, and I will send that. to okay, you. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll we'll get that out there. Yeah. But yeah, uh, we have over a hundred thousand dollars raised that goes to things like music programs and getting hands into or getting instruments into the hands of kids yeah. who really need a chance to show off their musical talents or even get what playing an instrument can do for you in your own development. Yeah. And then loud luxury. London's own connections. One Londoner, one Western grad, well, two Western grads, they will be performing on that big stage. Chris, can't thank you enough for stopping by. I know this has taken uh, a couple of minutes out of your busy day, so thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. Chris Campbell, chair of the Juno's Host Committee. We will be back to wrap up in just a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Just a couple of minutes left before we turn things over to Jacqueline LaBelle and Matthew Trevithick. And news, we do have, of course, American Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody below the border. If you are a Detroit Lions fan, you're fairly happy right now because the end of third quarter, Detroit 13, Chicago 9. As the Lions, do they want to win? This is becoming a tough question for Lions fans. Yeah, of course the Lions want to win. But wait a minute, they're 4-6 and six on the year. If they don't win, do they not get closer to a better draft pick? Can they actually make the play? It's, it is that real conundrum for Lions fans. I think for the Thanksgiving Day game, they would be thrilled to win it. So Lions fans, there we go. 13-9 heading into the fourth quarter. Washington's at Dallas. That's the other afternoon game. And then Atlanta and New Orleans. At Budweiser Gardens tonight, the London Knights will be taking on the Mississauga Steelheads. But before that game, we were able to relive some memories with members of the team of the century, the London Knights 2004-2005 team. If you were a fan of that team and you didn't get a chance to hear what we were doing during the first hour of the show, I would encourage you to go to our Facebook page at 980CFPL on Facebook, and you can watch. And we were able to basically run through the season and talk about some certainly some behind-the-scenes stuff, 
stuff that you just wouldn't realize had happened and relive what that team did that makes it so special now so many years later. That was 2005. We're talking 13-plus years later. And they have been voted the team of the century. They will be honored tonight before the Knights and the Steelheads play. Thank you so much to everybody who made that particular part of the show possible today. Thank you to Jacqueline Carbone for her help on the show today. London Live brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist. News is on the way next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.